Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful to gather together and to listen to your word. And I pray that through this, you'll give us the grace to trust you more, to prepare ourselves for that great day when we shall see you face to face. And I pray that that will be a joyous and wonderful day. Pray for attentive ears and soft hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start off with a question. How many of you in this room have gone to the Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas, right? One of the seven wonders of Kansas, an unexpectedly awesome exhibit. I know I was impressed with the Apollo 13 lunar module, all the Soviet-era space artifacts. But the, uh, the exhibit that really intrigued me was when they walk you through just the, the Cold War, and on one of those ancient TVs, they had a public service announcement with Bert the Turtle. Do you guys remember that? Bert the Turtle is wearing a, like a steel helmet, and whenever he hears an explosion, he immediately retreats into his shell. And it's all about training young people to know what to do if there is a nuclear strike. And, and this is the actual... This is the actual announcement that they give, okay? Now imagine being eight years old in the first grade watching a film, and this is what's said. When you see a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you have ever seen, if you are not ready, do not know what to do. It can hurt you in different ways. It can knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. I mean, serious business, right? It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you're like Bert, you'll be much safer, right? Notice it's all relative. You know how terrible sunburns feel? The atomic bomb can burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you are not covered. And then it gives the instruction that you are to duck and cover. The reason why they did that was because if the worst happened, they wanted to make sure that the population would be prepared to survive an atomic bomb. Uh, there was kind of an impending sense of doom. They knew that this that a nuclear war would have many casualties and those who weren't prepared would suffer the most. Well, in Luke chapter 3, we're going to see the dawn of John the Baptist and there's a, a public service announcement, so to speak. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through, 16, 1 through 6. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius... Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is a ministry of preparation. They didn't have films to show in classrooms. They did not have YouTube videos. God sent a solitary man to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he had to prepare them in a way that was kind of different from expected. If you were a Jew at the time, you thought when the kingdom of heaven comes, when the Messiah returns, that will be good news for us because we are the ones who are being oppressed, right? Yeah, if you're somebody who cries out for justice, you want justice, and you hear that justice is coming, you think that justice will be to your benefit, but John the Baptist makes it very clear that Israel in their present state is not ready. Now, what's interesting about this is your typical Israelite thought that they were in really good shape. Remember the besetting sin of the Jews in the Old Testament? What was it? It was idolatry. They couldn't help worshiping idols. And so God chastened them. He exiled them. And when they came back from the exile idolatry wasn't really an issue anymore. They weren't bowing down to Baal. There weren't uh, Asherah poles being manufactured anymore. They weren't sacrificing their kids to Moloch. Idolatry was almost this thing of the past. And so if you're a Jew, you thought, well, you know, we're not idol-worshiping pagans like these Gentiles over here. When the Messiah comes, we're going to be in pretty good shape. And the ministry of John the Baptist is to let the nation of Israel know that not, not so fast. When the Messiah comes, it's not necessarily going to be good news for you unless you are prepared. And so God issues a public service announcement to, to help them get ready. Now, this is during the first advent of Christ. At this church, what the Bible teaches is, is that there's going to be another advent of Christ. At some point in time, Jesus will come back in a supernatural way. And all of us will see the Lord face to face. And that's great news, right? Unless it's not. So how do you know if it's going to be great news for you? How do you know if you are prepared to see the Lord face to face? And, and in this room, right, we have different categories of people. We have people who are Christians, and you know it, right? And, and this is going to be fantastic news for you. You can't wait. We have those people who are not Christians, and you know it. And you're not sure if you actually believe this is going to happen or not. Or you believe it's going to happen, you know you're not ready, but you're not quite sure what to do. And then we have people who think they are Christians, but are not. They think that this is going to be great when they see the Lord face to face, but what they're going to find is that they're unprepared. But you know what? The preparation is all the same. To prepare for the Lord's arrival, it means that you humble yourself and you seek a soft, malleable, teachable, humble heart. That's it. 
And that's something that all people should seek. So I don't know where you are, but I think there's something here for everyone. So we're going to look at this public service announcement from the Lord. We're going to walk through it. We're going to look at the milieu of the announcement, the message of the announcement, and the mission of the announcement. And this is, now we've been building up to this for a while, haven't we? Right? You had the angelic announcement of, of uh, John, the birth of John in the temple. You had Elizabeth, whose baby leapt for joy when John, right, was in the proximity of Jesus. You have Jesus was dedicated at the temple. You have everyone celebrating these births. And, and last we saw, Jesus was 12 years old in the temple, basically showing himself to be someone who was eager to learn and had an early mastery of the law. And now 18 years later, John the Baptist is on the scene. And we get a picture of the milieu of the announcement that, that all of these supernatural events are actually intermingled with history. And the suggestion is this. This is not a myth. These are actual events that took place in space and time in ancient Israel. So starting in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, in this passage, this is the first of seven men that are mentioned, seven prominent rulers in the region. And the grand ruler of them all was Tiberius Caesar. He was the stepson of Augustus Caesar. And depending on your reckoning, he began his reign in either AD 11 or AD 14. And this is what the historian Tacitus said about him, okay? This is quite a statement. While his mother lived, he was a compound of good and evil. He was infamous for his cruelty, though he veiled his debaucheries while he loved or feared Sejanus. That was his top advisor, by the way, that he had executed for treason. Finally, he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace. When fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged his own inclinations. That was the leader of the Western world. Now, he didn't rule Israel directly. He appointed different sub-rulers, and we see a list of them here. You have Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trichontus and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Now, originally, this whole region was under the reign of Herod the Great. He was a strong, powerful, and somewhat effective ruler, but when he died, none of his sons had obvious ruling skills, and so what they decided to do was to divide his territory into three regions, three tetrarchies. Now, the three of them were Herod Antipas, then you had Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and then Archelaus. Now, Archelaus might be a familiar name. In Matthew chapter 2, we read that Joseph and Mary stayed away from Israel because of Archelaus. Archelaus was known for his cruelty. In fact, he was so cruel and so unpopular that Rome actually recalled him and replaced him with Pontius Pilate. And as we keep on reading the story, we know about Pontius Pilate. He was a conniving coward who sacrificed justice for expediency. You also read about Herod Antipas. He was a man who would imprison John for speaking the truth to power. We'll talk more about his sin later on. But in all of this, you see that they were unrighteous men 
who were ruling this territory. And, these, and the political leaders weren't the only ones who had this influence and this immoral influence. You also have the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Annas is an interesting character, and, it, and it's interesting how the priesthood is linked to both of these two men. Annas was a, was a priest for a season, and then it was removed from him, and he made sure that the priesthood stayed within the family. Eventually got passed on to Caiaphas, who was his stepson. And then when Caiaphas faded off the scene, his other sons became priests. Annas was the Joseph Kennedy of ancient Israel. You guys know a little bit about history? Joseph Kennedy was the patriarch of the Kennedys. Apparently, he made some political miscalculations, mistakes, knew he could never get elected, and so he made sure that his sons had positions of power. And so the, the voice and the power of the high priest, even though it was officially Caiaphas, nothing happened without the blessing and consent of Annas. And so here we have seven rulers who had a prominent role in the region. <clears throat> These were powerful men. And Luke mentions them for a number of reasons. Number one, this situates the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus in history. This is not a fairy tale. These are all men that are written about in even other sources. Secondly, we learn that when Simeon prophesied over Jesus, he said that, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and, a sign that is, and for a sign that is opposed. These are the men who would have the most to, to lose when the Messiah came. They're the ones who held political power, religious power. They rose by using oppression and using politics, expediency, pragmatism to gain the authority that they had. But when the Messiah comes, all that will be reversed. And finally, is there a contrast you have these powerful men who had the position, who lived in the palaces, had the politics, had a standing army at their disposal. And then you have John the Baptist who lives in a desert with nothing to his name. His parents are likely dead by this point in time because they were old when they had him. He basically camped in the wilderness wearing a cloak of camel hair and a leather belt. His diet, locust and honey, in different combinations. But what he had that made him powerful was a word from the Lord. You see in this next section, the message of the announcement. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Here you see the source of the announcement. He's called John, the son of Zechariah. And that's, incidentally, when they announce a prophet in the Old Testament, they often have the father's name. Like Hosea, the son of Beeri, Joel, Joel, the son of Pethuel, Jonah, the son of Amittai, Zephaniah, the son of Cushai. You kind of get the point, right? So here is a man where the word of God comes to him and he begins a prophetic ministry. And he is in the wilderness. He is at the place where the 
Dead Sea is joined by the Jordan River. It is hot, it is miserable, there is nothing to see there unless you're a tourist and you want to see where the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. He's there because there's a lot of water. It's also the place where it was believed that Joshua crossed over into the promised land. But what's fascinating about this, that if you wanted to hear about this message that John had, you had to leave Jerusalem. You had to leave Caesarea. You had to make your way to the most hostile climate in that region, possibly the world, to hear what this man had to say. The word of God came to him in the wilderness. And, and what was that word? Well, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The exact message is recorded in, in Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What John did was he called on religious people to repent, right? To repent literally means to, to change your mind. Uh, in the Old Testament, it, it speaks of doing a U-turn, where you turn away from your sin and you turn towards God. In fact, as we keep on reading, we see this in Luke 3, 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked, what then shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Notice. They are to forsake a sinful activity and replace it with a righteous activity. And then as John keeps on going, he, he talks about the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. They are to eventually be turned to Jesus, but that's a sermon for next week. But all this to say, to repent is to do a U-turn, right? You turn from your sin and then you turn towards God. You turn away from your sin and you pursue righteousness. That is the message that he's giving. And then once you do that, you are to be baptized. Now, baptism isn't necessarily just a Christian rite. Its roots are found in Judaism, right? To, to baptize means to, to dip, to be plunged under water. And when you look at ancient Judaism, there were several rites that required people to take a bath. For instance, if you had leprosy, you weren't officially cleansed until you took a bath. If you had some sort of bodily discharge, you weren't officially clean until you took a bath. If you were one of the priests who laid your hands on the scapegoat, where you placed the sins of Israel on this goat, you had to go take a bath. The idea was you had to be cleansed, right? Water has many wonderful properties. Uh, it hydrates you. You can use it for cooking. But it's also an effective solvent, right? To be cleansed, when you see that word water, being washed with water, it speaks of a, of a cleansing. And so that was part of the rituals of, of Israel where there would be times where they would have to take a bath. 
Now, there was a debate uh, during that time among some rabbis where there's some speculation that if someone um, were to convert to Judaism, when would they be eligible to take the Passover supper? The answer was after they took a bath. That you had to get the Gentile cooties off of them. They had to be cleansed. Now, what's fascinating about John is who he was baptizing. He wasn't baptizing the Gentiles. That would be understandable. He was baptizing God-fearing Jews. They had to be cleansed. And there's some messages here. Number one, John was treating his fellow Jews as if they were spiritual Gentiles. You have to be cleansed of your sin. Don't think that when the Messiah comes, you're in great shape because you're not. There is a reckoning that you have to deal with. When the Messiah comes and brings justice, he will punish you because you have been unjust. Secondly, this was an indictment against the spiritual leaders of Israel. They had not prepared their people for the return of the Messiah. This was an indictment. You are not as righteous as you think you are. You need to humble yourself. I mean, I've had a lot, the privilege of walking a lot of people through baptism, and it's always fascinating to see how the family responds when somebody gets rebaptized. If somebody grew up in a church where they're baptized as an infant, and they want to be baptized as a believer, which they should because that's what the Bible teaches, the parents almost see it as an indictment that they raised them wrong. They raised them in the wrong religion. It's almost a rejection of their childhood faith, and they're offended by it. Or you might have someone who was baptized as, let's say, 10, and then they went off to live a very wild life, and then... Sometime in their 30s, they, they got serious about the Lord, and they look back in reflection and think, you know what, I was really saved at that moment, not when I was 10. And when they get rebaptized, sometimes the parents just have a hard time with it because it's almost an indictment of the parents' judgment who signed off on it, right? And so in this case, seeing these Jews be baptized, it's an indictment on that religion. It's showing all of the people there that you're, that you're not ready and Israel has not been prepared for the arrival of the Messiah because it won't necessarily be good news unless they get their hearts right with the Lord. And all of this is the point of John's baptism, right? It's a baptism of preparation. This is very different from Christian baptism, by the way. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, some disciples of John the Baptist have to get re-baptized with the Christian baptism because our baptism is kind of linked to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and looks back at what Christ has done. And when we are born again, we are also baptized with the Spirit. And that reality has not happened yet for these disciples in the Old Testament. But all that to say, how John prepares them is by confronting them on their sin, by assaulting their self-righteousness. And that 
bleeds into this next section, the mission of the announcement. Look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, if you look in your margin, there might be a little footnote that lets you know that this is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. Specifically, it comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Now, if you know much about the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are a repeated indictment of the nation of Israel. Because of their sin, they will be exiled. It's all about the bad news. But chapter 40 is a, is a turning point in the book. It's about how they will be restored. And it begins by God bringing them back from the exile, and it ends with this glorious state where Yahweh is present in, in chapter 64 and 65. And so this is a pattern prophecy where he's talking about how, how the Lord, through his strong hand, brings his people back to the promised land by making a way for them so that the glory of the Lord can return with them to Israel. And what Luke does is he takes this prophecy and gives it another application. In fact, when you read it side by side with Isaiah, you see some key differences. I'll just read the Isaiah version, and you can look at the Luke version. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Now, if you notice, in Luke it says, don't say God, does it? For him, for the Christ. Notice how Luke is calling Jesus God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Again, very similar. And then here's the key difference. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Number one, in Luke it says all flesh, right? He's making it very clear that this is for Jews and Gentiles. And then instead of saying the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, he says, and see the salvation of God. If you see the glory of the Lord, only those who saved will see it, Right? He basically makes this a call to salvation, not only corporately, but individually. He's making it very clear that your life has to be ready. You have to be saved so that you can celebrate this wonderful day where the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom once and for all, beginning with Israel to the ends of the earth. And, and what is implied here is that John is the voice and this voice and this prophetic ministry calling people to repentance is preparing the way. And then he uses various analogies that relate to road construction. Right? If you build a road, you survey it, you chart the course, you remove the tree stumps, you remove the boulders, you try to level the high ground and raise up the, the low ground so it's not too steep and more safe. I mean, that is a ministry of preparation. In Isaiah, um, in Isaiah it, it, and even in that time, it, it was just very comfortable, that, it was very common, I'm sorry, when, 
whenever a foreign dignitary or a king would show up in town, you would prepare the road. You would dress things up a bit. In 2008, you had the Beijing Olympics, and it was really interesting to see what the totalitarian regime did to get the country ready by force. They not only built everything, they basically forbid people from driving their cars on certain days to make sure there's no pollution. They had a national program to teach all the Chinese etiquette. They regulated factories, and they made sure that Beijing would be ready to host these foreign dignitaries and impress everyone who came. So in this case, there is a national preparation that is to take place by an individual call to salvation. A voice was to call to them that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And this is another little link to what is meant by this. That verb made low in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew of Isaiah chapter 40, is also used quite a bit in Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, you see another prophecy where all the nations are gathering around the mountain of the Lord, worshiping him. And here are some quotations from that prophecy. Now notice the word brought low in every case. Isaiah 2, 9. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Isaiah 2, 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2, 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Isaiah 2.17 And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Right? That's the scriptural formula. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. He brings down those who are high in their own estimation and exalts those who are low. That is how the Lord prepares. It's basically a call to humility. See, people who are humble believe that God is the center of all good and glory. They exist for him, not the other way around. And what repentance does is somebody who's truly repentant, they actually humble themselves and they admit to everyone else that I am not as great as I thought I was. I've done much relational counseling in my time as a pastor, a lot of marriage counseling. And I've figured out that the hardest phrase to say is forgive me. When there is sin, some sort of conflict between two parties, people are okay saying, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry you're so sensitive. I'm sorry you took it the wrong way. I'm sorry I have to have this conversation. I'm sorry. But when you replace I'm sorry with forgive me, it's kind of like I try to coach them, okay, you're going to say forgive me, and the person says, <laughs> not to grab their mouth and say forgive me, right? Because when you say that, you basically say I have done wrong. I need mercy. It's an act of humiliation. 
That's not instinctive. But when the Messiah comes, he's looking for people who are not self-righteous, who are humble, who are saying that I need forgiveness. See, a lot of people, they're theoretical sinners, right? I know from Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm in the all category. Yes, I've sinned. Well, how have you sinned? Well, I, um, you know, I, maybe I'm impatient. Like, when were you impatient? I can't really think of an instance. You know, they don't really reckon with the fact that they are actual sinners. And when that happens, it can lead to a very, very hard, censorious heart. You see, the self-righteous are not prepared for the arrival of the Messiah. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not self-righteous. Well, (laughs) I mean, self-righteousness feels pretty good. I love feeling superior to other people, don't you? Just be honest. But to be ready for the Messiah, there is a sense where you have to have a soft heart. And so John is having this ministry of preparation where he's trying to kind of de-harden hearts by using truth to point to their sin. Now, as I mentioned, there's, there's different subsets of people here. You know, there's those who are saved and you know it, those who are saved or not saved and don't know it, right? But then there's some of you who are kind of in this category where you're not sure if you're saved or not. Um, some of you are bothered by it and some of you aren't. Those of you who aren't probably rolling your eyes like, here goes Pastor Dave again. Well, that's between you and the Lord. But I want to speak to those of you who are not sure if you're saved or you know you're not saved and you're really troubled by it. Sometimes there's a sense of hopelessness there. Like, I've prayed this prayer. I've done all these things. I, I just don't know how to... How to how to get over this. This is where I think John the Baptist's ministry of preparation can be very helpful. You see, there is a place for confronting and dealing with your sin to prepare your heart for a true relationship with the Lord. I want to go over some sins that are kind of linked to this passage. Uh, One sin that stymies spiritual seeking. There are the sins of sensuality. Do you remember Herod the Tetrarch? Herod Antipas? Well, when we keep on reading in 3, 19 through 20, where we read, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So this is Herod's story. Herod took his brother's wife, Herodias. This is an act of incest, sexual immorality. Now one day he had a man party, and his stepdaughter did a little dance. Did a dance at a man party, for an incestuous king. Now, you can imagine what kind of dance that would be. 
Well, he was so impressed with this dance that he offered her half his kingdom. She consulted with her mother, Herodias, who's kind of like the New Testament Jezebel. And she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Kill this man who's trying to indict me on my sin. And so he does. The deeper he got into this sensual, sexually immoral relationship, the more it had a greater grip on him, right? And I can't tell you how many times I have seen people approach the Lord, have curiosity, and seem to be going in the right direction. But because of a sexually immoral relationship in whatever form, all of that progress just stops. The unbelieving boyfriend doesn't want to give it up. He labors and works hard to stop the spiritual progress. The idea of giving up this sexual relationship or this pornography or you name it is just too great. The cost is too great. I can't let it go. If you want to prepare your heart to really come to Christ, part of it is reckoning with the sensual relationship. Another sin is greed. We'll talk more about this next week. But when we looked at Luke 3, 10 through 14, all of these were the sins of greed. People exploiting other people in the name of making a buck. You have another example of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 23. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack. So all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He didn't want to give it up. I mean, how many outsiders to the church love stories of financial scandal? See, I'm not going to give to that organization. I'm going to just hold on to my money. They want to control their money. They want to control their wealth. Or how many people, yeah, I want to come to Christ I want to pursue this and make this a meaningful part of my life, but I have to work on Sunday. And so, to provide, they give up meeting with the Lord's people. Right? And in all of this, um, greed holds them back. I know that even as a young Christian, I really battled with the concept of going into full-time ministry because I did not want to live off of the donations of other people. Because when you live off of the donations of other people, you can't just live any way you want, right? Right? That was a covetous desire in my heart. Right? Greed impacts us more than we know, but that is an obstacle. When you decide to be generous and self-giving and not be attached to money anymore, there is an open door to pull you to Christ. Then we have self-righteousness. Pete was kind enough to, to steal my thunder and share this passage. But apparently the Lord wants, to hit, wants us to hear it again, right? Luke 18, 19, 9 through 14. 
And he was told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, merciful to me a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? It's high to pride. I mean, these are the people who say, I'd never want to go to church because it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. What's the insinuation? I'm not a hypocrite. You have people who select churches on the basis of whether or not it will feed a sense of self-righteousness. I remember talking to a friend of mine who went to a liberal church, and he said every time the pastor got up, he would have some screed against Trump and his voters. Right? But you might find that in certain churches where it's ultra-conservative, and the pastor will get up and talk about, talk about the evils of, of homosexuality and transgenderism to a congregation where there's not somebody with the same-sex attraction to be found. But what does it say when people pick a church that indicts people outside the church instead of people inside the church. Right? See, a lot of times when we want to talk about the sins out there but not the sins in here, that can feed a sense of, of self-righteousness. And those who are self-righteous, whether it is inside or outside the church, is, is damning all the way around. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Really owning it. Then you have utilitarianism, right? The ends justifies the means. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest? There's a council where they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, and this is what he says in John eleven forty nine through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Murder Jesus, save the country. And sadly, this happens more than we know, right? Somebody has a business, employs a lot of people, takes a financial shortcut, ethical shortcut to save the company. Or, or how about this? There's a big donor who goes to the church. There's personal scandal in his life. And even though the church practices church discipline on everybody else, they hold their fire on him. Or a church leader has been involved in a sexually inappropriate relationship. But this church is doing so many good things that the leadership just covers it up and tells those who are victimized, just stay quiet for the good of the church. Right? That's utilitarianism. It's a lack of fear of the Lord where you're really trusting God to do the right thing. See, all of those things are are similar types of sins where it's a refusal to humble yourself, to admit that you're, sinners, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. 
So John is preparing hearts by confronting people on their sin and challenging them to get their own house in order. Now, some people will look at that and just say, if you just preach on sin all the time, how does that prepare people for the gospel? Why not just preach Christ? Aren't you going to be teaching legalism if you teach just right and wrong? And, and by all means, that could be the case. But legalism is a belief that if you do right, you can obligate God to bless you in some way. If you do right, you obligate God to merit your salvation. You earn it. But a passage that kind of stands out to me is, is John 7, 17, where Jesus says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You see, breaking away from your sin and making an earnest effort to obey God's law prepares you to truly understand the gospel for for three reasons. Number one, it gives you a tender conscience, doesn't it? It gives you an awareness of God's will, what is sin and what's not. Secondly, when you see how much you fail, it drives you to a need of a Savior. You need a Savior, right? I can't do this on my own. No matter how hard I try, I can't break free from this sin. And that reality will drive you to the Savior to be released from it. And so for those of you who are on the journey, I, I have this call to you. I, is there some sin in your life that you know is keeping you from the Lord? I mean, honestly, what's, do you have more hope for somebody who breaks up with their immoral relationship or keeps an immoral relationship and pursues Christ? Right? If you know something's keeping you back, you let it go. And then you pursue the gospel with a prepared heart so that you might experience the marvelous transformation that comes with Christ. So how do you prepare yourself? You humble yourself and you seek a soft, non-self-righteous heart. So let's pray to that end. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the ministry of John the Baptist and I pray that this message would have just prepared our hearts. There's someone here who is seeking and can't quite, um, doesn't quite seem to know how to take the next step. I pray that they will take their own sin seriously, turn from it, and turn to you in the process. I pray for just this week of VBS as we reach out to these children and share the gospel with them, that they will have soft hearts to receive this as well. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.